This is hell. Live from the United States, where jails are everywhere, this is hell. And too often since our show first aired in 1996, this hell we live in seems to keep getting worse. Even when we might think, we might hope, it's actually getting better. Case in point, the fight against mass incarceration, which has increasingly led to nonviolent criminals being released from prison and prison reforms that have improved the quality of life of prisoners, including new facilities that have made detention and incarceration a bit more humane. There is no question the anti-prison campaign has had some success. But a big component of that so-called success has been its misleading nature, whether supporters realize it or not. Yes, prison populations are decreasing. However, many of those prisoners are simply being moved to county jails, the population of which has exploded, as has new jail construction. Who knew? This problem, as is argued in the writing by today's guests, is partly due to the focus of anti-prison activists on making incarceration better, instead of greater attention being brought to ideas like decarceration, and more so, prison abolition. While succeeding in decreasing prison populations, growing anti-prison sentiment put into action reforms with good intentions, but bad unintended consequences, like county jail profiteering from incarceration, from jailing people, profiteering that brings county sheriff departments resources. Those same sheriff's departments grow to depend upon housing inmates. The revenue also fuels the political power of the local sheriff's department, which then becomes the lead the sheriff then becomes the lead representative of both law enforcement and elected government and starts organizing with other sheriff's departments around the country. As we have discussed here on the show with reporters from The Intercept about the National Sheriff's Association and their involvement with surveillance of and disinformation campaign against Standing Rock protesters. Wait, did the notion of prison decarceration unintentionally lead to sheriffs across the U.S. organizing against climate change protests? That wasn't even one of the questions I had written in preparation for today's interview. Well, it will be now, but you will have to wait for the end of the conversation for that one. Our guests to uh, our guests today are Jack Norton and Judith Shept. They are co-authors of the article at The Baffler Magazine, Go Straight to Jail, The New Geography of Mass Incarceration, a piece that was also written with Lydia Pilo Hobbs. The article is an excerpt from The Jail Is Everywhere, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration, which is edited by Jack, Judah, and Lydia, and includes a foreword by the award-winning author, geographer, prison scholar, and abolitionist, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Also, if you want to get hammered while listening to not only today's discussion, but going back and listening to all of our conversations with this week's guests, do a shot or whatever every time you hear Ruth Wilson Gilmore's name mentioned by any of our guests because I believe her work comes up in all of this week's guests' writing. Jack Norton is a, a geographer and assistant professor of criminal justice at Governor State University. You can follow Jack on X at JCK Norton. Judah is a professor in the School of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University. He is the author of Cole Cages Crisis. The Rise of the Prison Economy in Central Appalachia, and Progressive Punishment, Job Loss, Jail Growth, and the Neoliberal Logic 
of carceral expansion. Along with, uh, and you can uh, find out more about uh, Lydia. You can follow Lydia, who is a uh, also at the University of Kentucky, an author of Prison Capital, Mass Incarceration and Struggles for Abolition Democracy in uh, Louisiana. You can follow her on X at Lydia Jean 8. So check out both of those. Producing is I'm Your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast. Live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how are you? How was your week? Um... I'm doing very good. My week was very intense. Uh, yesterday, I shook up the entire Chicago City Council. After the end of the, uh, end of the hearing, I yelled ceasefire now on top of my lungs. The mayor and the whole city council just shook, and their staff and just stared at me. I nearly got arrested, but I uh, made it unscathed. I'm good. That's good. Good to hear. And uh, just in case you cannot tell by Chris's voice, it is a booming voice, and he is a barrel-chested human being who can really really broadcasted voice in a small space like a city council it will the sound will just stay inside and I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's probably pretty intense also join uh, Chris is joined today by Will Ippen Will how was your first week back to teaching or was this your second this was week two and uh, we're talking about the Mughal Empire this week so that's neat sounds like you're having a cold uh yeah a little allergy trouble Oh, is that it? Yep. Because yep. of the fog? Because of dusting. <laughs> oh, 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 oh <laughs> yeah, dude. It's, uh, it's self-inflicted. Because oh. I know I'd have a good time. God, I hate dusting. My week was another week of trying to get ahead enough on my work so I can take a day off from the normal daily work that needs to be done every day on the show so I can use that day that I get off from catching up on all of my work, putting out fires all the time. I can finally, maybe, if I work hard enough, take a day off to do the work on the radio show that I've been putting off for way too long. (laughs) So, more important than trying to get enough work done so I can get to more work, Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And uh, can you tell us how our listeners have responded on X, if you have that queued up? Yes. Uh, The question from hell is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? Uh, we do have one question on X, formerly known as Twitter, and that is the second coming of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Who left that one? It was Jamie. Jamie. Ja- Jamie's a recent winner of the question from hell. Very good answer, Jamie. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Also, at, that's at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole. Or you can direct message it to us via X at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can leave your answer in our Discord community or on on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber of Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, jails are everywhere, which doesn't say much for our democracy or for capitalism. Chris will have our Patreon, not our Patreon, but our uh, Facebook respondents answers to the question from hell. We will also have Dr. Sebastian Vupper returning. Uh, He's going to be doing a past inside the present. Dr. Vupper has a PhD in history, and uh, during the Past Inside the Present segment, he offers and gives us the historical context of the past to help us have a better understanding of the present. Uh, Chris, what is Seb talking about during this week's Past Inside the Present? Uh, Seb clears up some hellish misconceptions. 
looking at the interplay between the Nazis and the Zionist movement in Germany during the 1930s. Yikes. Uh, we will also tell you who we have confirmed as guests on next week's show, assuming we have confirmed guests for next week's shows. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell there was a time not too long ago when nobody seemed to be dissenting from the idea that we needed to do something about mass incarceration the u.s leading the world and people in prison was finally no longer being tolerated by the public and they were demanding some kind of reform any kind of reform but many knew that reform would not be enough that reform could in fact just lead to the same system of incarceration but now with a new smiling face. So what has happened since prison populations started dropping following a wave of nonviolent prisoners being released and brutal old prisons being raised? Well, for starters, there's been an explosion in people now in county jails and construction of new jails. Here to help us have a better understanding of what's going on with incarceration, we are joined by Jack Norton and Judah Shept. They are co-authors of the Baffler Magazine article, Go Straight to Jail, The New Geography of Mass Incarceration, a piece that was also written with Lydia Pilo Hobbs. First to you, Jack. Welcome to This Is Hell. Uh, hi. Thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. And uh, Judah, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be here. Thank you so much. This is an exceptional article, and I'm going to start with kind of a depressing uh, question, and we'll start with you, Jack. Uh, you start by writing there is a quiet jail boom occurring across the United States, particularly in the smaller cities and rural counties, most often overlooked or mischaracterized by national media. So Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who wrote the foreword to your book, is a prominent abolitionist who in 1997 co-founded Critical Resistance, an international organization that aims to dismantle the prison industrial complex. And she called for an end to the construction of any new prisons, jails, detention centers, to have nonviolent offenders released from prisons, to divert people away from interacting with law enforcement through decriminalization. As abolitionist Raina Sultan explained in an article at transformharm.org that lays out uh, eight steps to abolition, which is a really great outline for how we could move toward abolition. So, Jack, if we are now in at least the 28th year of organizing, not only against expanding incarceration, but abolishing it, why are we seeing expansion in county jail construction? Is the, that's the bigger question, Jack. Is the campaign against mass incarceration, is that campaign failing? Um, I'm not going to say that it's failing. I'm going to say we're seeing a lot of uh, jail construction um, I'll say there's a different geography around county jail construction that we're seeing, and that's part of uh, what we're trying to get at here. So jail incarceration rates have actually fallen in big cities in the U.S., and I mean the big cities like uh, New York, Chicago, uh, L.A. Um, but what we're trying to point out in this piece in the book that we, we edited is that um, jail incarceration rates have actually been rising in smaller cities and, and rural counties across the country. And um, as I'm sure you know, I mean, there are over 3,000 counties in the United States. Almost every one of them has a jail. Um, so we're talking about a real an expansion of capacity to lock people up, but it's happening in a, in a very decentralized way all over the place, uh, sometimes in places that you or I might not have heard of. You know, there's a lot of counties. So um, 
I wouldn't say it's failed. I would say that there are a lot of places that have been building bigger jails. There are a lot of reasons for that that we can talk about. But there is a different uh, geography around mass incarceration going on right now. So, Judah, let me ask you a big picture question as well. Is the obstacle today to decarceration, uh, at the least, if not abolition, is it the is the obstacle the the political will or public position on stopping the construction of sites of incarceration? Is it a reluctance to allow the release of non-violence prisoners, or is it just an unwillingness to move toward a less criminalized society by the public? Mm, that is a big question. Part of what's happened, I think, with this decentralization that Jack was naming is that jails have become really integrated into our communities and cities. They're not, I think we tend to think of them as being primarily about crime and punishment. And of course, there's strong relationships there, but they're also about budgets and revenue shortages and unemployment and infrastructure decline um, and county budgets and local profits. And so I think part of the obstacle to decarceration and abolition is both a recognition of this kind of complex, diffuse, and really integrated role of the jail in all of our communities, um, and recognizing also that it is the local site of this beast that we talk about as the prison industrial complex or mass incarceration. And so part of our motivation for editing the book was to draw attention, yes, of course, to this new geography of carceral expansion at the level of the city and the county, but also the ways that people all over the country, including in counties that we may not have heard of, like Jack was saying, are actually confronting this site of mass incarceration and challenging it and sometimes winning. Again, the article that we are discussing today that uh, was posted at Baffler Magazine is an excerpt from the book, The Jail is Everywhere, the collection, I should say, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration. So, Jack, uh, you uh, write as county after county has been building bigger and bigger jails and as more and more people have been detained and incarcerated, the nature of jail incarceration, the way that the different levels of the states are using jails has changed. So is society becoming increasingly decriminalized, except for, as you point out, jails are increasingly becoming used as immigrant detention centers for federal agencies like ICE and the U.S. Marshals. So, Jack, is society becoming increasingly decriminalized, except when it comes to uh, immigration, not to confuse legalization with decriminalization, which are two very different things, but are changes like the legalization of marijuana in many states and and, uh, release of prisoners on nonviolent marijuana-related charges, is that a step toward decarceration, maybe even abolition, but increased criminalization of immigrants is a step backwards? Is this another case with civil rights of two two steps forward and three steps back? Oh, it's a great question. I I guess I would start by saying I don't I don't see that we're becoming a increasingly decriminalized society. And I, I, I know what you mean. Like there some, some drugs have been decriminalized in some places, but uh, you know, not, not every state or is marijuana even decriminalized. Um, so in my research around jails and rural areas, I've seen a lot of what we would call and um, the criminalization of poverty. 
basically just like activities people are engaging in to survive uh, uh, being criminalized. So that can be uh, sleeping outside. Um, of course, small amounts of drug possession are still driving incarceration rates, uh, especially in states with really high jail incarceration rates, like um, in Appalachia, like in Kentucky, for example. Um, so that's one thing. I think that we are, uh, criminalization is still the root of a lot of this problem. Um, and then in terms of the criminalization of immigration, um, yeah, federal agencies, so ICE and the U.S. Marshals have been using county jails as a sort of flexible detention capacity. And we can, you know, I can go on and on about that if you want how that works, but basically they, they pay counties in order to like rent out jail space, they pay per diems. Um, and they've been doing that since at least the 80s, probably longer, but it has really been driving uh, this expansion of jail uh, infrastructure. So counties are building bigger jails because um, it can make sense or it can seem to make sense to them because if, if they're going to build big, they say, okay, we can have a revenue uh, source in ICE, right? We can hold people for ICE, the U.S. Marshals. So, um, so yeah, so that that's leading to bigger and bigger jails, especially in, in rural counties and small cities. Um, and it also allows uh, federal agencies like ICE or the Marshals to be able to um, kind of deal with the counties that will play ball with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. They have they have options all over the country. And Judah, you, Jack, and Liddy also write that whatever the claims of jail boosters, jails are sites of immiseration and death. Is that true of all jails, Judah? Not just supermax prisons or high security federal penitentiaries or places like here in Chicago, Cook County Jail, but all jails are all jails a site of immiseration and death? Yes, I would say, you know, there are plenty of stories around the country of jails hastening uh, folks, uh, folks deaths, right? I mean, just here, I live in Kentucky and Lexington and just down the road in Louisville. I think there have been something like 12 deaths in custody in maybe the last 18 months to two years. That's a lot um, for a relatively small city. So there are are there's absolutely evidence that uh in terms of like you know what we might think of as immediate or spectacular episodes of violence like death and custody jails absolutely enact that but i think it's also really important to think about um violence and immiseration on you know a slightly longer temporal chain and jails um like you sort of indicated in your question are immiserating. They strain family ties. They often have really terrible health care inside of them. As Jack was saying, people are increasingly doing longer periods of time in jail. You know, historically, people are in jail pretrial or if they're sentenced to under 365 days. Uh, and people are increasingly doing longer periods of time there for class D and class C felonies. Um, so they strain ties, they have no access, very little access to programs, poor health care, particularly in smaller cities and rural areas. Um, people lose custody of their children. There's just like all kinds of ways that they enact slower kinds of violence and certainly immiseration. Let me follow up with that uh, on that note with uh, Jack. So, Jack, um, is it possible to have 
jails without immiseration and death? Are we choosing to make jails sites of immiseration and death? Or by their very nature, are all jail sites of immiseration and deaths? Is the problem, let's say, an individual jail? Or is the problem the entire idea of incarceration? Yeah, the problem is incarceration and criminalization. And, and I don't know, I don't think it's possible to create a, a, a good jail, um, despite you know people's very real good intentions around this. And, and I think it's, I'm really glad that you point this out because um, this has been a real excuse for people to expand jails in more sort of progressive places where they say, okay, well, we need to build a bigger jail. We need to invest a bunch of money in the jail so that we have better programs so that it is somehow going to be a site of, of health and well-being. And I think that's impossible. The other thing, if you give me a minute, is I think um, there's a part of this, because we're talking about like rural counties, and, and you think about a rural county, it's like the other thing that's go the, the broader context of rural America is like a lot of deindustrialization, a lot of hospital closures. Um, you know, there's broader immiseration, and the jail is related to that, because when we talk about okay, jail expansion is happening in rural places. That means more and more investment, more and more money is going into jails and policing in rural areas in places that really need other types of, of infrastructure. And I just want to point that out um, to the listeners, because when we talk about a jail expansion, we're talking about a, a sort of capital project at the county level that that county is going to go into public debt for, right? So to build a jail, a county is going to borrow on the on the bond market who knows how many millions of dollars and that's probably going to be over 20 or 30 years those bonds and it gets a little wonky but what i'm trying to say is all of this investment in jails and rural places precludes investment in in sort of actual life-giving infrastructure and that can include hospitals and that can just be like roads and parks and stuff like that so like there's a lot of money going into jail and rural areas um and a lot of these counties, a lot of these places are places that are in need of resources. And there are a lot of people, as we've pointed out on the show in the past, a lot of people who are making money off of this by investing in those municipal bonds that can pay for anything from jail expansion to uh, paying off lawsuits, civil lawsuits that are being brought against law enforcement. Uh, so let me just follow this up with one more question, uh, Judah. So do you think that's the... That's the public's point when they when they are talking about supporting jails, that they want these places to be sites that are inhumane, that bring about immiseration, that bring about death. It, do you think that's the way that the public views what they want jails to be, what they want justice to be, uh, you being punished with the threat of immiseration and death? Hmm. I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure, Chuck. I, I think um, because mass incarceration ensnares so many people, over two million people locked up. I mean, I think all of your listeners probably know the numbers, right? Ten million people we're talking about cycling in and out of the system. I think because of the scale and size of mass incarceration, almost all of us have some personal connection to it, whether we've been arrested or done time, or we have a loved one or a colleague or something like that who has done some time or who has a family member who has. So given that kind of personal connection, I'm, I'm not totally sure I buy the idea that people at this point want jails and prisons to be exclusively punitive. And I think our book and 
I, if I'm not mistaken, every single chapter, there's 11 chapters documenting 11 different sites of jail expansion and opposition to it. And I think every single campaign example raises this idea that you alluded to earlier of what's called carceral humanism, the idea that these jail expansion or construction projects are justified less by an appeal towards that kind of like like let's say racist animus or punitive spirit and more so towards the idea of the jail providing a certain kind of social service or medical service or rehabilitative um, component. And, and I think, um, you know, on the one hand that maybe reveals decent, good intentions of people wanting to take care of the most marginalized members of their communities as it also reveals just how central jails have become to both our political imaginations and our actual kind of political infrastructure at every scale of the United States. And so I think it's incumbent upon us um, to, to, to do the sort of or political organizing work and the political education work to make the point that we were talking about earlier, that these are inherently sites of, of immiseration and premature death and that all of the kinds of services that we think people need are correct. They just need to be invested in. Those are the capacities that we need to build out in our communities outside of cages, because the cages don't, in fact, actually address the crises for which they sort of putatively serve as the solution. And Jack, you uh, write that whether they are called jails, detention centers, justice centers, justice campuses, borough-based jails or county prisons, county and city jails from a form a diffuse, locally governed network of sites in an ongoing class war in the United States and beyond. And you add that the, these detention sites uh, comprise a local and flexible in infrastructure for the imposition of austerity, the ongoing entrenchments of state racism, and the reproduction of capitalist social relations, and are an expanding capacity of the carceral state. As the tactics, contingencies, and geography of this war changes, so have the uses of the local jail. So, Jack, how does the wealthy benefit from what you call state racism? I know that this is probably a general question, and a lot of people who are listening right now are yelling their answers at the radio or their computer right now, but this is not a question that you often hear anybody ask. So how does the wealthy benefit from what you call state racism? That's a that's a big question, and I, I deserve it because it's big in the chat, so thanks for reading all that. Uh, how how does the wealthy, well, we talk about jails as a form of class war, and I'm trying to think of like stories, because I've researched a lot of rural areas and a lot of jails and a lot of places, and I'm thinking about what people have told me during that time. And I'm thinking about once I was in South Georgia, I won't name the county, um, and I was talking to a retired local politician, and he was trying to explain to me um, this is a this was a county with a really high jail incarceration rate, like really high. So it means you know there are a bunch of there are a lot of people in the jail per capita at any given time, but it also means people are constantly cycling in and out of out of the jail, right? So in that cycling in and out of the jail, jail's like uh, it's sort of the entryway to mass incarceration. So people go in, they go out, and then maybe they're on probation afterwards. So even if people don't end up going to prison and they go through the jail, it's sort of marks people 
by the criminal justice system. So, and, and Georgia has a really high probation rate. So I'm rambling, but basically what this, this gentleman told me, he said, look, he said, jails depress wages in this county. Like they lower wages, you know? Um, they make it so people are less mobile, right? So if somebody's on probation and can't leave the county, um, right, they can't leave the county. If somebody's on probation, if somebody's been in jail and they're caught up in the system, um, they're going to need to accept some kind of job, whatever that job is. And and in this case in South Georgia, this is like Georgia's a big chicken processing uh, area. So it's like he sort of said, well, like, how do you think people, uh, they, they pay people that to work at the chicken plant? So I'm going on and on. There's a lot of um, ways that um, jails function as a sort of infrastructure of platform. It's like we could talk about jails. It's important to remember jails are part of policing. So this is a bigger conversation about like, what is it that police actually do uh, in capitalist social relations? Um, but that's that's one example I would give. Um, jails help depress wages. Jails help keep people in line. And then we can get into a discussion about like the actual institutional or local political power of the sheriff. But um, yeah, I'll leave it at that if you let me. Let's, uh, so Judah, you also point out, uh, you and Lydia and Jack, you also point out that county jails are not on the margins of the carceral state. Nearly every person in prison in the United States first spends time in a jail. And in recent decades, the lo- jail has become much more than a place to detain the local rabble, as John Irwin in one of the foundational studies of the American jail wrote in 1985. In the nearly four decades since the publication of Irwin's The Jail, a book published in the midst of the largest uh, prison expansion in U.S. history, the number of people incarcerated or detained in local jails on any given day in the United States has increased nearly threefold, in part due to the shifting role of the jail as a site of coherence for policing, state and federal prisons, and immigrant detention. So are the factors, uh, uh, Judah, are the factors that uh, are leading to more people being in jails, increased criminalization and enforcement toward immigrants, rising poverty and inequality, while the already rich become even more wealthy, and a way to control the rabble who are created by these conditions? And, And Judah, most importantly, how central is control to the increased criminalization and enforcement? <clears throat> yeah, I, it's all of the things you just named. Um, I think part of what's happened, I think Jack began to speak to this a couple questions ago. Part of what's happened in some of these more rural and small city environments, you know, it's the same patterns that we've observed in larger cities in terms of the hollowing out of communities, deindustrialization, capital flight, structural unemployment, those present crises very legitimate, very real crises for those counties. They're crises of both, you know, production, like that, which is to say work, and social reproduction, which is to say how those counties and even the households and smaller communities within them actually like reproduce themselves, Um, which is also in one way a question of control, right? If these once reliable sources of, say, employment or revenue generation are now inaccessible, you know, those counties face a crisis as do the, you know, people who live within them. And so jails become one uh, often somewhat reliable mechanism for trying to manage all of those crises. It, It often fails on its own terms, but that is one way to manage, let's say, 
unemployment, both in terms of the people who may be accessing, you know, uh, illegal sources of income and for people who might be looking for work, right? Like now as trying to remake themselves, let's say as a jail guard, um, but also for revenue. And this is just a little wonky, but I think it's really important. In some places, Jack alluded to this or spoke to it earlier with respect to immigrant detention. Counties are building out their jails not only because of, let's say, rising incarceration rates of local people in a given rural county or small city, but also because they can rely on ICE, the U.S. Marshals, or a State Department of Corrections to house federal detainees or state prisoners in exchange for per diem payments. And it's a way for jails to actually like keep their doors open. So in Kentucky, where I live and do some work, where Jack does a lot of work, you know, Kentucky has like one of the highest rates of incarceration in the United States, but about half of the people you would expect to be in a state prison are actually housed in a county jail. And the state, it costs the state way less money to pay a county to incarcerate a DOC prisoner, Department of Corrections prisoner, in a county jail. So it's this sort of perverse incentive structure for counties to build out their jail infrastructure. So, Jack, is is inequality fueling more arrests and fewer public resources? And has the public yet to make the connection between inequality and its impact on society, like more people being thrown in jail and cities and counties going broke, and its impact on their own community? Are people starting to recognize the bigger impact of inequality? Uh, that's a great question, and, and I'm not sure what people are starting to write. I mean, I definitely this is about inequality, like like you said. I mean, jails and police, right? They're, they're it's enforcing the, you know property uneven property relationships, basically. But um, and in terms of communities, I think you know I'm sticking with Judah's uh, example of Kentucky. I think it's important. Uh, the wonky aspects of this are kind of important because some communities. Um, are actually, uh, or like the political strata of some some rural communities and small cities are sort of investing more and more uh, in in this system of incarceration. And I think that's important to understand. Um, like what Judah was saying about like Kentucky, right? You have some rural counties that are building bigger and bigger jails um, to be able to get some of that revenue uh, from state, from the state, from people that are sentenced to, to class D and class C felonies. So that's going to be, um, I don't know, that can be a, a number of different crimes, but usually drug crimes. Um, the point is, like some of these counties, it's not like the sheriff of a county that builds a big jail to get revenue is just like sitting on profit that they're getting from this. They're doing it for revenue, and that's part of the county budget. So when a county builds a huge jail, whether it's for ICE or maybe it's to, to get revenue from state prisoners, um, that county is investing uh, in a system of incarceration, right? They're investing in a future of more people getting locked up in that jail. And, and I really, and, and they're doing it like, right. They're going into debt for like 30 years and they're precluding other investment. So the reason I'm going off into that is because like, it's going to be different. And when you talk about like reforms in some of these places, Right. Like if I'm running a county and we've gone into debt for 30 years to build a massive jail and we're going to pay for that debt 
by the state paying us per diems for people they're locking up for uh, drug low-level drug felonies. It doesn't matter how much of a reformer or how progressive I might be if I'm running that county. I can't really, uh, right? Like structurally, I'm in a position if I'm running that county where it's like, I don't want defelonization. I don't want decriminalization because that's going to make my county insolvent. That's going to cut off that revenue. Um, and I hope, I hope that you can follow that because I think it's important because it's not necessarily just about like bad actors here. I think what's going on with this jail expansion, uh, it's also building sort of political structures that, um, that can lock certain places in uh, to looking at uh, problems of crime and criminalization in a certain way um, that really matters for county budget. So it's partly based on the bottom line. The bottom line is definitely a, a contributor to what is happening with the expansion of county jails. But Judah, do do sheriffs believe we can fix the problems that they might be encountering personally, uh, the under uh, the shortcomings, I should say, of capitalism by like things like inequality? Do they think that we can fix these problems, these societal problems that we have by throwing those suffering from it, capitalism's shortcomings, from its exploitation in jail? To, do they believe that to save capitalism, we'll uh, just throw some people in jail and uh, when capitalism fails, we'll put them in prison? Because I, mean, I, I just, Jude, I just don't get it. How sustainable is a political economy that depends upon imprisoning those it does not serve those whose demands it cannot meet. Well, I think that's exactly the point, right? It is unstable inherently, and it is the kind of objective crises, like those crises that are built into the actual model of capitalism, um, for which the jail or the prison or the cops serve as a kind of solution to manage the rabble, as jo as John Irwin said, 30 some odd years ago or longer. Um, to manage, you know, kind of the relative surplus population in, in Marx's terms. Um, and so sheriffs, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't know that I can speak to what they actually believe. I think Jack said it well in his previous answer that they're sort of structurally position, positioned in our political economy and the way that we um, operate our political system. Um, to be the sort of tip of the spear, if you will, at the scale of the county uh, in managing those contradictions of capitalism. They're the ones who, oper who operate the jail um, and supervise, you know, a police power. And so it is they're sort of structurally positioned to, to do just that sort of. And I, I want to underline this thing Jack just said, sort of regardless of what their personal politics or inclinations might be right like whether this is a virulently racist sheriff who just wants to lock people up or a sheriff with decent intentions and progressive politics there's only so much that a given individual might be able to accomplish within a system that is organized around the capacity of jailing and policing its population and so for them let's say those progressive or forward, you know, more forward thinking sheriffs, they are sort of positioned to look to what they can work with, which is the jail or the police department to enact the kinds of, you know, more like benevolent kinds of approaches or practices or policies. So they talk about, you know, developing what's called crisis intervention teams for police departments or, um, 
you know, I, I mean, there's a couple of chapters in our book of people, you know, uh, of situations where counties literally use the language of like social justice or racial justice to, um, to sort of justify jail expansion. And uh, I think one of the ways to understand it is that that has become the sort of central site. The jail has become the sort of central site for those kinds of officials, county officials, certainly sheriffs, to try and exercise those kinds of intentions, however good they might be. So, Jack, do you think that the South is, or counties in the South, do you think that they are actively pursuing or supporting uh, an expanded police state within their communities? Do you think that that is something that they are actually aiming for, not just this is being based on the bottom line? Uh, I'm sorry, did you say in the South? Yes. Um, Oh, because I think it's happening all over the country. That's a good point. Um, And and so, yes, and I, you know, I would, I would don't think we should single out the South here. You know, when I, when I started doing this research and this was a long time ago is when uh, Trump was first running. So it was like summer 2016. The places that I started, the first place I went to was Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which is, you know, Rust Belt, Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at a lot of the sort of like deindustrialized Rust Belt cities, um, they have some of the, not only some of the highest jail incarceration rates in the, in the country, but um, some of the highest racial disparity in incarceration. Um, and, and yeah, real, really high racial disparity. So it, it is the South, it's the, it's the Midwest, um, it's the West, it's, it's happening all over the country. Um, so, so yes and, basically. I like the yes and answer. So Judah, we, we just have a couple more questions for each of you. So Judah, is mass incarceration the outcome of deindustrialization, austerity, and heightened inequality, or is mass incarceration a response to deindustrial deindustrialization, austerity, heightened inequality? What came first? <laughs> um, uh, it is a response to it's yes and again, right? It is a response to those things. It is uh, an exacerbation of their effects. It's all of the above, and. I think one just small or not small detail, but one other component here to just underline again is it is a response in the sense of policing and criminalization and incarceration of people who have been, um, you know, most targeted by and left out of the, you know, contracting nature of our communities under deindustrialization and outsourcing. And at the same time, because of the scale and scope and size of this problem, communities have turned toward prisons and jails as almost a kind, not almost, as essentially a kind of development project, right? Like this is where the state at the federal, state, and local level winds up investing its money and capacity and human capital, right? This is where prisons in you know rural communities become um framed as or advertised as a kind of like rural jobs program 
or where the jail becomes, as we've been talking about, a source of revenue for communities that have seen revenue declines. So it has become a putative solution for, for those same kinds of patterns and crises that have been characterizing our communities, urban and rural, since you know the early 1970s. I've got one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Jack Norton and Judith Schept, who co-wrote the Baffler magazine article, Go Straight to Jail, The New Geography of Mass Incarceration, along with Lydia Pilo Hobbs. The article is an excerpt from the book, The Jail is Everywhere, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration. You can follow Jack on Twitter at JCK Norton. You can follow Judah on Twitter at Judah Schept. That's S-H-E-P-T. One last question for each of you. And uh, our final question for all of our guests, I promise, is always what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So let's start with you, Jack. Did did attempts, (laughs) that's already a great answer. (laughs) Did attempts at improving jail conditions without considering decarceration, let alone abolition, while preserving incarceration that generated new revenue for local sheriffs lead to the political power we see in sheriffs' organizations that they're having today, like the National Sheriffs Association, and reporting at The Intercept that we discuss here with Will Parrish, and that group's involvement in a disinformation and surveillance campaign of Standing Rock protesters. In response to poor prison conditions, did the federal court provide a revenue stream for sheriffs to become politically powerful on a national level? Did it expand unintentionally the police state? Um, yes. I mean, it's a, it, I'm sort of like, that's a very good explanation. I think um, did attempts at in, improving jail conditions lead to expansion of police powers and the powers of the sheriff? Um, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Well, that's an answer from hell when it's just yes, because that means that all of that is true, which is frightening to me. So my question from hell for you, Judah, is uh, you write that while incarceration has always been wielded as a class war project, it hasn't only relied on punitive attitudes for credibility. There is also a historical legacy of prisons as reform projects where proponents justified incarceration around principles of rehabilitation and treatment, often through paternalistic ideas of extending notions of American exceptionalism to racialized subjects and bringing or restoring them to idealized notions of wage labor productivity. The historian David Rothman has pointedly argued that reform effects, quote, or efforts, quote, may well have done less to upgrade dismal conditions than they did to create nightmares of their own. So extending notions of American exceptionalism to racialized subjects and bringing or restoring them to ideals, ideal notions of wage labor productivity, that sounds to me, Judah, more like what we might imagine a re-education camp would be than a prison. Human Rights Watch's report on re-education camps in China cited China's Ministry of Public Security, describing them as re-education through labor, an administration me- uh, administrative measure of reform through compulsory education, designed to change offenders into people who obey law, respect public virtue, love their country, love hard work, and possess certain standards of education and productive skills for the building of socialism. If you take out the word socialism, Judah, how close is that to what reformers want to see in carceral humanism? 
I think that's actually largely correct. I'm going to say two things here. One is that carceral humanism, um, we sort of use as this catch-all term and periodize it to kind of the last 10 years or so uh, to characterize this seemingly new approach to building like whatever more humanist benevolent kinds of, of jails and prisons which we've just kind of deconstructed but it has it has as as we said in that excerpt that you that you read it has this much longer um, historical antecedent which is you know the so, sort of history of the prison itself which was of course first first created as a kind of reform effort uh, against you know older monarchical forms of corporal and capital punishment I'm talking hundreds of years ago so that's one answer the other answer however is to speak about this approach as uh, I'm not sure you use this term but I think I would which is a kind of counterinsurgency and here I would point every listener to a new book that written by uh, a friend and colleague of mine and Jack's named Ori Burton or Sonny Burton the book is called Tip of the Spear everybody should read it and Ori it, it, the the book is about the what he calls the Long Attica Rebellion, um, and there's a part in that book where Ori makes this exact point that um, attempts at following the actual rebellion inside Attica Prison, Nelson Rockefeller and other uh, you know other politicians and would be reformers turned away from explicit displays of state violence and towards what today we would call cultural humanism, efforts at reform and education and treatment and whatnot, not necessarily as a way to quote, like better people who are locked up or rehabilitate them or whatever, but as a way to in fact preempt their more radical rebellious and revolutionary demands and activities. So I think with that as like an important historical context for carceral humanism, we should be very, very skeptical and careful with those kinds of efforts to sort of, you know, improve or better these existing uh, institutions. That was a fantastic answer to the question from hell. Also, Jack's was when it was just yes, because that was also a very good answer to the question from hell. So, Jack and Judah, thank you so much for being on our show this week. Uh, thanks to Lydia as well for uh, getting in contact with us and talking uh, and possibly being on the show, but unfortunately she couldn't make it today. So our guests have been Jack Norton and Judah Shept. They are uh, editors of the new collection of essays, The Jail is Everywhere, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration. You can follow Jack on X at JCK Norton, and you can follow Judah on X at Judah Shept. That's S C H E P T. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This is exceptional writing, something I've never really considered before, something that you're making it so we all know about it. So it's not just something that's in a rural area that we don't see. The jail is everywhere. Thank you so much for explaining this to us on today's show. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. All right, take care. Live, live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell, an unjust law enforced unequally that locks people up, which has proven to not be the deterrent to crime law and order types claim it is. 
Now, that's a freaking crime against all of us. If you gained a new perspective on incarceration from our talk with Jack and Judah, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell just by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On this week's Patreon podcast, which goes live Friday morning, January 26th, we had a guest on the show who contributed to an ongoing conversation we have been having on This Is Hell, a discussion I've been mentioning not only on the show, but on Patreon as well, a talk on our unique age of suffering and what's behind it. So it came up again this week, as it always comes up here on the show. I've considered numerous mental health syndromes and disorders that I might have, and I have all the symptoms of every emotional problem that can be linked to one constant in all of our lives, and that is capitalism. But this week, one of the interviews brought new light to the topic of how we suffer from capitalism. Now I'll be talking about that this week on Patreon. Also on Patreon, you would probably not have been surprised at any time over the last, I don't know, three and a half months, if you saw the headlines in the paper, or on your computer or phone, America's hidden role in Hamas's rise to power. Or if you saw a headline, virtually the entire Congress supports Israel's war crimes in Gaza. You wouldn't have been surprised to see that since October 7th in any newspaper or any online news outlet. But here's the thing. We had a guest on the show nearly 15 years ago, actually 15 years and one week ago, who was posting those stories back then. And if you become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, you can hear our January 17th, 2009 talk with Dr. Steven, Steven Zunis, professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco, where he chairs the program in Middle Eastern Studies. He is also the author of Tinderbox, U.S. Middle East Policy and the Roots of Terrorism. That is one of the most prescient books ever on what has happened during the in, inside that region in the 21st century. So yeah, headlines like America's hidden role in Hamas's rise to power and virtually the entire Congress supports Israel's war crimes in Gaza. Those are the kind of stories that we've been talking about for 15 years. But the only way you can hear me find another piece of the puzzle and finding out how, or trying to figure out how capitalism is destroying all our lives in a 15-year-old conversation on Gaza that sounds eerily sounds like it could have been a discussion from today. The only way you can hear all that is by subscribing to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word, secret special code word, for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Chris, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding in our This Is Hell Discord community? This week's question from hell is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? And so some of the answers from Discord, we got one from Kim G. And uh, they wrote, all the bullets and bombs turn into delicious cupcakes and everyone laughs with delight and amazement. (laughs) The laughter of both joy and pain is so loud that it opens up a giant sinkhole that sucks all the warmongers into the Earth's fiery core. All right. Okay, cupcakes and hole. I got it. And my favorite name here, Marks and Sparks, <laughs> says the defeat of Hamas, which actually means the displacement and total annexation of Gaza and the West Bank. Hmm. Doesn't and sound good. 
Mm. And then Cam wrote, Good news! Ron DeSantis finally has time to go to Palestine and bore everyone to sleep, creating the conditions for a permanent ceasefire. <laughs> and Kaolite, Ke- oh, Keolte. Kilter. Keolte. Kilter. Oh, Kilter. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. okay. Um, wrote, I don't know. I'm going to go and demonstrate outside an arms fair now. Maybe I'll think of something. All right. And share, he, it, we'll share it with us later, Kilter, after you come back from the protest. <laughs> and uh, he wrote, instead of a real solution, we'll get a Band-Aid reunion. Oh, God. Oof. And Dig Dug wrote, sorry, I'm just hearing about, sorry, I'm just hearing about this. Can someone catch me up? <laughs> That's a pretty good answer to the question from Al. I liked how he, that liked how he then had to, or Dig Dug, I liked how he then had to explain, that is my answer to the question from Hell. I'm not asking a question. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merch. You can see all of our stuff at uh, our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, we will be announcing the winner following uh, Seb Vooper and The Past Inside the Present, which is coming up right now. Returning to This Is Hell, Dr. Sebastian Vooper, a historian himself, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian! The past inside the present. Today's topic is extraordinarily difficult. Zionism and Nazism. And wait a second. I'm sorry. I have to. I have a show running on. Uh, okay. Now, now we're now we're good. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had the show running in the second window, and I haven't closed. Didn't get to close it fast enough before Zoom took over, and uh, I had hurt myself on loop. Okay. <clears throat> Again, from the top. Today's topic is extraordinarily difficult, Zionism and Nazism. That is uh, what I want to talk about today, specifically how uh, the two interacted in Germany in the 1930s. And for all the surface similarities and superficially similar goals that existed between Nazism and Zionism, the most important difference at this time and for all considerations on their common goals was that, well, the Nazis were in power. They had erected a formidable awesome suppressive state apparatus in the holy crap not in the awesome dude sense obviously the german jews some of which were zionists were a very small very vulnerable minority that lacked power of course nazi propaganda would insist that the jews were immensely influential regardless but those claims were surprise surprise without merit And today's episode in the ongoing series covering the history of Zionism is one of the prime examples for why this is a very difficult history indeed. Because while there are issues with Zionism, at the same time, it's not as if the fears and issues that Zionism arose in response to were unfounded. Anti-Semites, and by that metric, the Nazis, shared with the Zionists the conviction that the assimilation and emancipation of European Jews was an insufficient step to tackle the question of what should become of them in the long term. Both anti-Semites and Zionists came to the conclusion, independently of one another, that the best solution for this quote-unquote Jewish question was to physically remove as many Jews as possible from Europe. Zionism, like many contemporary forms of nationalism, so uh, the then new idea of creating a legal state that was run by a people, focused on uh, the idea of creating an ethnostate, so a nation state that exclusively caters to one single ethnicity. World War I then represented a strange chapter for many Jews. 
for many German Jews. Many of them were gripped by the same kind of war fever that swept up so many German people. Uh, they were no less eager than their Christian countrymen to grab a rifle and start shooting Brits and Frenchmen and Russians on the battlefields of the Great War. But as the war ended badly for the German Empire and as the monarchs abdicated and Germany reconstituted itself as the Weimar Republic, Jews were blamed for the loss and for the chaos that followed. Jews, the Nazis were quick to claim, had finagled a plot to plunge the world into the Great War. And Jews had then further finagled yet another plot to see to Germany's defeat in that great war. Many Germans thought Jews were behind the quote-unquote stab in the back when the command of the German armies decided to seek armistice instead of continued slaughter. Meanwhile, many cemeteries of fallen German soldiers after the war also featured plenty of Stars of David among the crosses on the gravestones. But all of the national fervor for Germany that the well-assimilated German Jews felt and fought with uh, in the war helped them very little in the end. If anything, the horrors of the Nazi regime were unshakable proof that no matter how well Jews assimilated and integrated into non-Jewish society, that they would always be under threat. Historians of Zionism stress that even though German anti-Semites and Zionists shared the goal of removing as many Jews as possible from Europe, this does not mean that they were in any real sense accomplices. And that is ultimately true, and that is important to you know point out and stress. While the anti-Semites to some degree agreed with the goals of the Zionists, they never regarded the creation of a Jewish state as a real positive. They were still anti-Semites, after all, uh, and a Jewish state for them represented a state run for and by lesser, if not outright, intrinsically evil people. In turn, historians point out, and I think this is, again, a really important point to make, the German Zionists never once expressed positive thoughts towards the Nazis and their murderous program of systematized hatred towards the Jewish people. In their virulent, gross, and offensive anti-Semitism, the Nazis superficially confirmed the suspicions of many Zionists, but they also regarded the Jews in the way that the Zionists wanted their group, their, their own people to regard themselves, as one people, as one nation, as an indivisible ethnicity, one that can not ever assimilate into another. Alfred Rosenberg, uh, or Alfred Rosenberg, if you want to pronounce his name more American, like one of the chief ideologues of the Nazis even went so far as to say that the Zionist project could categorically not be one for the creation of a Jewish state because the Jews were inherently incapable of creation of anything. They could only ever act as parasites. So if they were to create a state, the state would only exist to drain others and to provide a bastion for the Jewish world conspiracy that had been laid out in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But Rosenberg's position on the Zionists was also ambivalent. He also wrote that the Nazi movement should seek to support them whenever possible, because after all, they were doing the work of the Nazis uh, that the Nazis would otherwise have to do themselves, work towards removing the Jews from Germany and from Europe and to concentrate them in one place. And as long as the Zionists insisted that Jews were their own nation and people, it would also be easier to deny the, the, any Jews German citizenship because, well, look at your people. They're saying that you're a different nation, so why should we give you citizenship? At this point, I need to stress that by far not all German Jews were Zionists during the Weimar Republic and after the Nazis took power. 
some of the German Zionist leaders thought it might be fruitful to establish official communications between the official Zionist movement and the National Socialists as the Nazis became increasingly popular in the later Weimar years. But there was no consensus between Zionist groups in Germany and much less still across the German Jewry in general on what should be done in that regard. Most German Zionists saw the rise of the Nazis and the massive popular upswell of anti-Semitism in Germany as a sign to increase their efforts to prepare the German Jews for emigration to Palestine. The, uh, the Zionists generally thought the fight against anti-Semitism that the larger German Jewish organizations were engaged in as a lost cause. And after the Nazis took power in 1933 and enacted the first anti-Jewish law, some Zionists thought it would this would hopefully help their cause that this development would make more German Jews amicable to the idea of immigration to Palestine. The Zionists were, however, not cynical enough to welcome these developments in any way. Uh, Kurt Blumenfeld, um, Kurt Blumenfeld in German, but whatever, uh, president of the Zionist Federation of Germany, made it clear in his writings that he was aware that the position of Jewish people in Germany had become quite perilous. Quote, those who have come into power now will certainly use whatever measures they can muster in their fight against Jews, unquote, uh, that he wrote after the fall of the Weimar Republic. Blumenfeld emigrated to Palestine in 1933. Meanwhile, the increasingly ridiculous burdens the Nazis imposed on Jews living in Germany made life for every Jew there so difficult that the Zionists saw themselves increasingly hindered in their work. Nazi bureaucracy specifically made the immigration of Jew, uh, of, of out of Germany for many Jews almost impossible unless people wanted to leave everything they owned behind. Uh, the German Zionists appealed to the Nazi government to make things easier for the German Jews. But the Nazis were generally unmoved. However, they eventually were ready to make some small concessions. And these would come in the shape of the Havara Agreement. Uh, this was a transfer agreement that was geared to preventing Jewish capital to flee the still reeling German economy, economy in the 1930s, while exporting large amounts of German goods to mandate Palestine. German Jews were allowed to emigrate out of Germany if they invested their own fortunes in German-made goods and products that they would then take along to Palestine. And there they could then sell these goods and products again, recouping their losses, basically. About 60,000 Jews left Germany uh, this way between 1933 and 1939 when the Nazi regime unilaterally ended the agreement. But Havara was only one tool the Nazis used to further Jewish immigration. Eventually, the SS itself became involved in the policy towards the Jews. The organization supported most German Zionist organizations as these were seen as furthering the same goals the Nazis had in mind. De-assimilation, creation of a Jewish national identity, and eventually emigration and expulsion of the Jews out of Germany. The German Zionist organizations were then collectively outlawed in the wake of the November pogroms that we know in the U.S. as Kristallnacht on uh, November 9, 8, uh, 1938. When Nazi Germany went to war a year later, the fate of the European Jews was again rapidly worsening. The Nazis had never seen the Zionist movement as anything but a useful tool to make Germany free of Jews. Uh, eventually, however, the quote-unquote voluntary removal process, as it was called, was deemed by the Nazis to simply take too long to achieve the goal of removing the Jews from the country. And, uh, well, things got significantly worse from there on out.
Uh, I hope I could elucidate a little on why it is a dangerous miscalculation to accuse the Zionist movement of being a willing collaborator with the Nazis, and why it is generally not a good idea to make unqualified comparisons between the National Socialists and the Zionists. At the end of the day, it all comes back to power. The Zionists were a small part of a very vulnerable minority population in, across Europe, and the Nazis were a genocidal mass movement that represented the majority of the German people with a massive popular backing. And these two things were not in any case, in any way, the same or really even comparable. However, here too, we need to be careful. There are parallels between fascism, Nazism, and Zionism, but there are also quite significant differences. And that is why this is such a difficult and quite fascinating, but also horrifying history. Anyway, today's segment was informed by historian Francis Nicosia's article in the German quarterly history journal Vierteljahreshefte für Zeitgeschichte titled A Useful Enemy. And I am somehow turning this season's past inside the present into an ongoing course on the history of Israel and the Zionist movement, which it's my segment and I do what I want. Uh, next session, we'll take a detour and look at a truly hellish document and its impact on Jews, Zionists, and anti-Semitism, the so-called Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Wow, that's what you're talking about next week? Holy! Yeah, I, I hope so. Cow! Holy cow. All right. Well, looking forward to having you back on next week. This has been, that was an absolutely fantastic segment. Thank you so much, Seb. I really appreciate it. All right. It's it's been too long. It has been. Enjoy your upcoming weekend. Okay. Thank you. I try. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hal. Chris, what was this week's question from Hal? And please share how our listeners responded on Facebook and any other stragglers on any of the platforms. Uh, Let's see. The question from Hal is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? And we have a few answers on Facebook here. Um, David Zinder wrote, the war in Lebanon and... (laughs) Yikes. John wrote... The subduction of the land from the river to beneath the sea. <laughs> For all you geology fans out there. All and right, any, any more? Chris wrote, the end of quote-unquote Israel. Yikes. Elliot wrote, propaganda of the dead. <laughs> propaganda of the deed. Of the deed. Wow. Okay. Fabio wrote... One phone call from the White House saying all military and financial aid stops. I thought for sure it said propaganda of the dead, and I thought that was a lot better. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I thought it was dead too, but it was deed. Actually. I know. Yeah, that didn't change my glasses. Um, <laughs> then Blake wrote, a shit ton of aid, a multinational buffer army, an end to aggressive military offensive, and some other thing to start as a bare minimum. <laughs> Any more? No, that's it for now. All right, so the answers I liked most this week were, and Will and Chris tell me which one of these you think was the best, unless you have another suggestion. I like Greg G saying uh, that, uh, you know, the answer to this week's question from hell, again, which is, uh, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? Greg G said, a heartfelt TikTok video from Oprah and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> Mike the Giga Grouch said, about 300 years. Dean T said, an actual god. Neil C said, all Israeli military contracts taken over by... Alaska Airlines, which I really like. That's very timely. Uh, Essential saying bootstraps. 
Tom H. saying, time to find out how persuasive those Klondike bars really are. <laughs> Tarver said, uh, human extinction. Uh, let's see, Wally said, uh, our son becoming a red giant. John saying, the subduction of the land from the river to beneath the sea. That was really good. And on Twitter, Jamie saying, the second coming of... Henry Kissinger. Any of those answers really stick out to either one, either one of you. Stand out to either one of you. I mean, I kind of like uh, Klondike, <laughs> Subduction, and Bootstraps. What about you, Chris? Short list. Um, I, when it comes to the Oprah Rock TikTok, yeah. I can smell what that's cooking, so I'm kind of leaning <laughs> towards that one. All right, Greg G., you are the winner of this week's question from hell for your answer of what will end the war in Gaza, a heartfelt TikTok video from Oprah and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. All you have to do is uh, tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now. Go to thisishell.com, click on support, check out our swag, email which piece of merchandise you want, Greg, to chuck at thisishell.com with your mailing address, and we'll get whatever merchandise or swag you want in the mail to you as soon as we can. My answer to this week's question from hell, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? Let's see. We've been covering the rise of Hamas with U.S. and Israeli assistance and the war crimes allegations being made against Israel by international humanitarian organizations, including humanitarian organizations in Israel that are made up of former Israeli Defense Force soldiers for over 20 years. And that didn't stop the war in Gaza from happening. So I'm going to say what will end the war in Gaza will be at least another 20 years of This Is Hell reporting on it, while very few others in the States will. Chris, who is our confirmed guest? We've only got one guest so far confirmed for next week. Who is our confirmed guest? Next week, we will be speaking with Kat Bohannon, author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat is a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition. Thanks to Chris Colfan for producing. Thanks to Will Ippen for joining us today. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Live streaming. I really got to get that taken care of. Maybe a little tetracycline will fix that up. This is how office hours happen every Wednesday at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Havana Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It's our week Wednesday meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Every Wednesday, no matter the weather. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996. This is Hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>